If you are able um, to stand with me as I read scripture this morning, I will be reading from Exodus chapter 4, verses 14 through 31, and then Romans 9, uh, verses 14 through 18. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Exodus chapter 4, 14. Then the anger, oh, yeah, I thought he was going to three. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with you, be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and you shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hands this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and he had them ride on a donkey. And he went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met with him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. In Romans 9, verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he had mercy on whomever he has mercy. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Joy to serve with you, brother. Begin today with a few questions for you. Do you believe that there's an overall plan to history? Is that something that we can know about? Is it something we can participate in? See, I think for most history in the West, that those who are somewhat biblically literate, you say that's a fairly clear answer. You say if you're, you know, read your Bible casually, you say absolutely there's a plan to history, that God's in control. We've all read Revelation. We even know how it's going to end, that, that God's working across all history. Now, what makes that so controversial is that that's not what a lot of modern sensibilities tell us. That if you learn just a, a little bit about, you know, kind of the way the, the culture thinks about things, say, no, we're, we're, there can't possibly be a plan. You know, you throw God out, say, there's no plan. We're all just uh, independent agents trying to do our best, trying to maximize our pleasure, uh, that we're moving through history as best we can. Uh, we should, you know, kind of self-actualize. And the question of whether or not all of this is going to tie together is something we can't know. In fact, it, it probably doesn't exist. That We call this the rejection of the meta-narrative to use the rejection of the overarching plan. Now, those of us who've been coming to Providence Church or members of Providence Church say we, we have a major cultural tension there, don't we? Say, I hope we're those who are under uh, God's word. And we say, no, absolutely. God is working his purpose across all history. That he's gathering a people to himself. That he's announced it, uh, as we'll see, at the very beginning of scripture. In fact, from before the foundation of the world, he says, I'm gonna buy a people back for myself. And this is the game plan of redemption. And so you remember where we pick up our narrative here in Exodus chapter 4, that uh, Moses is, uh, I think, uh, appropriately uh, a bit daunted by his calling, that he's the one who's going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. This is very intimidating, and he's uh, not a great speaker. So how's he going to preach to the people, not just his own people, the Israelites, but he's got to go before Pharaoh and announce to all the Egyptians, how's he going to do this um, when, when he's, you know, not the guy? What's God going to do? And we'll see that he's going to supply, uh, God supply Moses with what he needs to carry out his task. And I think that, in a way, is uh, what we're, we're on about here. To say a lot of people, sometimes this is called open theism, if you've heard that, or process theology. And they have this view, well, you know, we're kind of doing what we want to do, and God's reacting, and God's plan can be adjusted accordingly. And we have to reject that. We so know God's got this game plan of redemption that can't be thwarted that be it human reluctance or bad decisions or even evil, right, it's all taken account, it's all accounted for in God's overarching plan to buy back a people for himself. And we, those of us who've surrendered to Christ, we find ourselves in that redeemed people, the redeemed people of God, doing his bidding, announcing what he has done. So again, today we'll kind of take this up, looking at God's plan of redemption and then two responses uh, to this overarching plan. They say there's a way to say to resist God and his plan and a way to come under it and to prosper. So firstly, again, notice um, that we find ourselves in the middle of a redemption narrative. That Exodus is the, the most graphic portrayal of God buying his people back, not just from physical slavery, but from the bondage of sin, that God will liberate his people as he promised to do so. And this has been announced before the beginning of time. So you can think of Genesis 3.15, immediately after Adam and Eve fall, that history then takes uh, the most major turn it ever has, that we are born into sin. God announces, right, I'm going to send one. 
the seed of a woman's going to come and going to crush the head of Satan and, and inaugurate this game plan. So God is not caught off guard by human rebellion. He's not caught off guard by reluctance, but rather he's working his plan and purposes. In fact, it goes back before Genesis. Did you know that? That on a few occasions, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, uh, you know, the writers say, well, before the foundation of the world... God announced that the lamb would be slain. Say, remarkable. Say, of course, those of us who are under God, we believe that there's a plan, that it can't be thwarted, that God works all things to his purposes and to his glory, and we have the privilege of uh, seeing that in his word. So I want to focus real quickly here on verses 14 to 17. And uh, while you just look at that little section, do you see how often speech or mouth or words, or teaching comes up in just that little passage. How do we know God's plan? Um, is it just out there in the ether? You know, do we feel it? Say, no, God has been so kind to communicate his plan, say not every aspect of his plan, but more than enough for us to know and to respond to it. That he's chosen, by his grace, human instruments to speak through. Now, you think of this interaction, it's a little bit strange, isn't it? To say, well, I want to ask, my objection here is to say, well, why doesn't God just speak right to Aaron? Aaron's a better uh, linguist. He's, got, he's much more eloquent, right? We've learned that. Aaron speaks well, Moses doesn't. Uh, but God's going to have Moses speak to Aaron. Say, why in the world would he do this? And I think the answer to that is, one, to test whether Aaron uh, will be humble enough to come under his brother who doesn't speak as well as he does, but also to show us the point that there's human involvement in this proclamation. That the people of God have the privilege of announcing that God is working. That there's a plan. You're not this outlier, you know, this agent moving across the, the plane for the, the decades that you have, but rather God's got a plan and you can be reconciled to that plan and live within that plan and have peace and do God's bidding, which is our very purpose. That Moses and Aaron, like I think in a, in a way every Christian is called out to use words to describe what God is doing. You see how different this is. A God who speaks. See, in antiquity, it was very clear. Who, who were your gods? Your gods were the little figurines, the idols. You could draw a god on the, on the wall. You could make him in a figurine. You can build an elaborate temple to him, but you know what? The gods never spoke. I've been to places, as you have, where they still have idol worship, and you watch the priests go in, and they go, and they bow, and there's the idols there, but you know what? They're doing all that, so the idols don't speak. You see, God is a speaking God. Not only has he uttered it once, but he's been so kind to give us his word in the form of our Bibles, his word, to tell us the plan. To say, it's, it's there that, that God will win what we're to do, all we need to be right with him, how it's going to end, and he's been so kind to say, I'm not playing games, I'm not trying to be shadowy. Here, I'll put it in your hands. A speaking God who's laid out all that we need of his plan so that we can be right with him and know what we're to do when we posture ourselves under him. Again, unlike any other religions, if you think about it, to say there's a God out there and he has to be obeyed, but only our God says, look, I've, I've given it to you in speech. Here it is, and you're to go out, all those who are under me, and announce it, right, to proclaim it, to be heralds 
of this wonderful news that God has brought his people back from our rebellion to come under him. So there's a game plan of redemption. God's involving Moses and Aaron. This plan is not going to be thwarted by Moses or Aaron or even Pharaoh or anything else for that matter, but God's plan will go forth. And that should give us a tremendous amount of comfort uh, as we even sit here, those of us who are his in Avon. So the next part, really, where we want to move from here, and you're reading this, you say, this passage in some ways is very odd and very difficult. But I'll, I'll try to make it, I think, as, as, uh, quite, quite simply. Verses 21 to 23 are going to show us really a response of not coming under God's plan. And then verses 24 to 26 are a different kind of response of obeying God and, and coming under him. They're two very different scenarios, but both of them involve that God's got a plan. He's asked something of his people. He's moving in history. And there's a response that says, I don't want anything to do with that. And there's a response that says, you know what, I'm going to obey, and I'm going to settle under God. So we'll start with those verses 21 to 23 with Pharaoh. And what we'll see is that Pharaoh will neither repent nor submit to God's plan for his people. So Pharaoh is the one who's going to say, no thanks, not coming under God. Now Moses and Aaron really are, are sent to preach. Uh, they're the ones who God has elected to go and to preach uh, to Pharaoh and then the Israelites to announce, hey, God is buying his people back and, and, and this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. You, you turn, you turn and come into line and see what God is doing. That's what's happening, but we learn both from our, uh, our popular understanding of the story, but then because God tells us here in chapter four, right, Pharaoh, is he going to do this? No, he's not going to do this. Uh, Pharaoh is going to turn his own way. Now, before we go any further, if you look down at verse 21, the modern mind objects. There's a major objection here, isn't there? God says, as you go and preach Moses and Aaron, and you tell Pharaoh of the game plan of redemption, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. You say this again, the modern mind really bristles. Wait a second here. You're sending out your preachers to announce that God's redeeming his people, that you want the people to respond to that God, and yet here we're told that you harden Pharaoh's heart for the very purpose that he will not let the people go. Where's, what about free will? The great treasure of the modern American psyche, right? What about my free will? Where's my free will? I know that I do what I want. Why isn't God playing on those terms? So I'll try in these moments, right, to give us a few views, as countercultural as it is, as what this means, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and why this too should really be a comfort to us. Firstly, when people talk about free will, free will in secular philosophy is an incredibly complicated topic. So there's uh, something called the Oxford Companions. Maybe you know what an Oxford Companion is. It's a, you know, kind of a, a, an overview of a weighty topic in, in um, uh, you know, there's Oxford Companions on everything. So there's something called the Oxford Companion of Free Will and Philosophy, and that companion says that there are over 90, <laughs> nine zero views of what free will means. There's causal determinism and genetic determinism and formal determinism, and you, you go up to 90 different... So even on account, so a lot of people look at this, they read Exodus 4, say, you Christians are absolutely nuts. You've really muddled this matter of free will and determinism. You have no idea what you're talking. Say, no, free will is a tremendously challenging topic. So you think about it, say, who of us chose our parents? Who chose our genetics? 
Did we make a good choice of being, or in my case, I made a very good choice in being born in Northeast Ohio? Say, no, there's some level in here to where you say, no, I find myself in the world in some aspects with a, quote, a hand to play. At the same time, I think everybody in the room says, I really have choices, and those choices really have consequences, right? That's what we experience every day, that there's a level of, gosh, I've been, I've been given something to work with here, and I can't get beyond what I've been given to work with, and at the same time, I can exercise free will. So I guess what I'm saying is some people look at this, they say, How, you know, wh where's the free will in this? We all know we have free will. Say it's much more complicated than that. Do you all have, do we all have free will uh, to drive home any way that we want. And you might say, well, yeah, I think I do. But not really, because there are certain roads you need to follow. And your car, and th there's gas in your car, and you have commitments this afternoon. In other words, there's always parameters to free will. You know, free will, the way people uh, really talk about it, is if they have this view of floating naked in space. Uh, that, that, that is not what, you know, that, that's really what they say. No, there's always parameters. There's a system to work in. And so before we go clamoring on, well, I want my free will, let's at least nuance it a bit and say this is a very challenging topic. The real issue, though, the real issue and what's important for us is that why this passage is so objectionable to the modern mind is because we have a misunderstanding of God and we have a misunderstanding of his creatures, humans. Now, what happens often, right, is that what the modern mind does is it wants to bring God down. You know, sometimes I'm talking to people and they, they envision God as your kind of, you know, current-day cosmopolitan liberal small L living in Alexandria, Virginia. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a gentleman. Uh, you reason with him. He's kind of he's just very polished, and, and uh, you know, that's who we want God to be. We say, bring God down a little bit. And then what we do is we, we bring ourselves up. I'm actually a pretty good guy. Given the chance to make decisions, I make the right ones. That I can live in a nice suburb, and I got a nice degree, and I'm a pretty clever guy. So you see, you're coming into this, you read this, and you get really mad at God here. Why? Because God is kind of just like us and ought to be a reasonable fellow, and we're pretty good people, and uh, we're, we're definitely not, not uh, sinners or anything like that. And what we'll, we'll have to do to see what's happening here is to actually enter into the, the world the Bible presents, the real world, I'd argue, is that God is our creator, that he's holy, that the very fact that I'm able to speak and you're able to listen and think and later today speak, say the only reason we're even here is because God's been so incredibly kind to us. That we're, we're clay in the potter's hands, right? That God's our maker, he's high and lifted up. And you know what the the diagnosis of us is not that we're clever people that make good decisions when we have our free will. See, the diagnosis is that I am a child of wrath. You read Ephesians 2, 3, right? That, that my free will, if you read, my, my free will isn't the solution to my problems, it's the cause of my problems. Because given free will, I look out for myself. So can you kind of enter this world so people will look at it and say, how, you know, they're bringing God down, so here we are, we want God to operate on our terms. I'm the one who's going to tell God what's right and what's wrong and what's reasonable and what's moral, and I don't like that he's doing this thing to Pharaoh. So we're bringing God down to operate underneath our fallen view of things, and that can't be the case. So I would challenge you that when you read this to say, okay, what's really the biblical account of this? That there's a high and lifted up God who's pure. We're his creatures, and each of us, by going our own way to thinking of ourselves, has incurred his wrath and so the, the great question that this leads up to comes out of that second reading. I think the answer comes out of that second reading 
in Romans chapter 9. See how amazing each week we're reading Exodus and then we read a New Testament passage. Why? Because the Bible's one book. It's one story of redemption. What Paul says, he anticipates the objection, doesn't he? So you think the Bible's an old book. Well, what's he saying? Is there injustice on God's part? That's exactly the question our minds would say. Well, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that his glory might... So, I mean, what's God doing? Is God unjust? Paul anticipates the objection of the modern mind and his audience and his day too. And his solution is this, that the question... The question ought not be why God condemns. That the real marvel, the the question we ought to be asking is why God would have mercy on any. That the question isn't how how dare God judge and condemn. The marvel is, God, why would you save any? Why would you buy any of us back? God, you're so incredibly kind. I was in the fast lane to destruction doing my own thing, looking out for myself. But you in your kindness, God, in your mercy, reached down and quickened my heart. You in your grace reached down and you saved me by opening my eyes to the Galilean carpenter. I didn't come to the Galilean carpenter because I'm a clever guy and somebody strung a syllogism together. And I hope that's your story too. Who would think that? God's opened our eyes in his kindness that he's put forth Jesus in history, the humble carpenter, and he's opened our eyes. And before we judge God and say, how dare you? I hope our reaction, immediate reaction is, God, thank you for your mercy in saving us. You're so kind, God. So again, the question ought not be, how dare God condemn? But what an amazing God to save some. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Now, again, I you know, think that again, the problem here is a misunderstanding of God and who we are, that God needs to be lifted up and we ought to be diminished and it's the exact opposite impulse we have. But let's go a bit further with this language still of hardening the heart of Pharaoh because of course we never deny that God is the complete author uh, of life that we read in Proverbs 21 as we did last week, right? That God controls the hearts of even the most powerful people, uh, that he's moving them. Again, his arching, overarching plan. There's no process theology or open theology. God working his plan, steering uh, Pharaoh. How might we understand this? A lot of people, when they read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, will read it as if God is injecting evil into the system, that God is actively putting the poison into Pharaoh. There's something uh, God is compelling Pharaoh to do. Now, if that is our theology, we got a big problem. Because God then becomes the author of evil, doesn't he? Well, here's Pharaoh, and God's going to insert something into Pharaoh to make him do evil things. Then how is God not the author of evil? You say, well, I think that's the wrong understanding of this. The way God hardens Pharaoh's heart, which, by the way, it's very interesting, 19 times in Exodus, this language of hardening Pharaoh's heart comes in our text. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Other times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Say, what are we supposed to do with this? This is what I would submit to you. That actually what God is doing in hardening Pharaoh is handing Pharaoh over to himself. He's letting Pharaoh be Pharaoh. Absolutely God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He hardens Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to do exactly what Pharaoh wants to do. That the evil need not be injected into Pharaoh. It's already there. Why? Because we're all children of wrath. The only reason why the worst people in history aren't worse yet is because God in his mercy and his kindness has restrained them. 
So this is the language, I think, in, in Romans 1, if you know that, God gave them up. It's actually a terrifying thing, and this is what is so shocking, right? You try to reason, say, the, 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 the solution to this isn't that I need more of my free will. Say, that is precisely the problem. It, it, my fallen free will will lead me quicker down the path of destruction, keep more in an eye of myself, I'll be a worse pastor to you, I'll be a worse spouse to Mallory, I'll be a worse parent to my boy. Say, my free will is not the solution, my free will is the problem, because the more I'm doing my thing, the less I'm in tune of being dependent upon the grace of God. So Luther, again, very strong in this, the bondage of the will with Erasmus, exactly the kind of passage the two of them would debate. It really pops after 500 years. Luther, Luther's very clear, he says, it's not that God has come into Pharaoh, it's that he's withdrawn. He hardens Pharaoh by saying, Pharaoh, you're going to be the bloodthirsty tyrant that you really are. And I'm so powerful that I'm going to use that to achieve my means. I think a word picture might be something um, like, a, like a, a plant that's... Uh, picture a plant that you're really pruning and working and it's got beautiful blossoms on it. I mean, this plant, it's a very demanding plant. And every day you're in there and you're pruning it and you're looking at the flowers. You've got to water it. I mean, it's a very delicate plant and you love botany. So you are really taking care of this plant and it looks beautiful. But you go on a two-week European vacation. You take your hands off the plant. You come back, that plant is shriveled up. It's dead. It looks terrible. You say, you've not done anything actively to it, right? You've not poisoned it. You've not uh, crushed it up and ripped it apart. All you've done is you said, I'm going to let that plant do what that plant's going to do. And it dies. And I think this is a lot of our way of understanding how does Pharaoh harden, how does God harden the heart of Pharaoh? He says, Pharaoh, I'll let you do what you want to do. And he withholds his mercy and withholds his grace. And so you see, friends, this objection, and also you can see how this really fits well with the other things we believe in this church, right? To be regenerated is an act of God, right? A merciful act of God. Say, well, what about hell? Does God send people to hell? No, what God's doing there is he's saying, okay, I'll take my, my mercy and my grace off, and hell is precisely the place that people who hate God want to be. So the hardening of Pharaoh is really God withdrawing from Pharaoh and using that towards his overarching plans. And this is the way we can both say that God really does harden the heart of Pharaoh. Why? Because he directs the hearts of people. He's very much in control. They were his creatures. We believe that. But also that Pharaoh did exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. So there's example one. God's got a plan. And you notice who that plan, interestingly, is about. What, what God says, it's about his son, Israel. So Moses and Aaron say, hey, Pharaoh, God's got a plan for his son. You let him go. Pharaoh says, nope, don't need that. Doing life on my own. Won't come into the covenant family of God and won't repent. Okay, example number two, and I am aware of the time. Example two, for 24 to 26. Now you read that in isolation. You gotta say, I can't believe I'm doing this this morning. What in the world? This would make uh, your list, you know, your cataloging passages of very difficult ones to explain. Uh, Exodus 4, 24 to 26 is going to make your list. So listen to the questions we might have. Who is the him in verse 24? Is that Moses or his son? Moses had two sons. Was the other one circumcised? Why does Zipporah, his wife, circumcise the child and not Moses? Why does Zipporah touch the foreskin to Moses' feet? Why does this act appease the wrath of God? Why does Zipporah call Moses a bridegroom of blood? 
Is a bridegroom of blood a nice thing to say or not a nice thing to say? Um, probably not a nice thing to say now that I think about it. So you, said, you don't say that to me. That's good. Yeah. So, um, In sum, why does God give us this? And I think we'll just try to make, again, to be responsible minimalists and not read into the text. Right? We let this text speak to us. Be responsible minimalists and make some, make some moves here. Firstly, preface comment, really. This is a 3,500-year-old text from the ancient Near East. There are some things, like you remember when we did Genesis 38, you're like, this is very odd. I mean, there's a Leverite vow there. We don't do this anymore. So what we're saying, actually, this kind of passage should authenticate the Bible. You say, okay, there's some practices here that were popular in the ancient Near East. Say something like touching the circumcised male's foreskin to the feet of the father. You say, this is very weird. We don't do this anymore. Um, so this is something we just say, we, the, the first reader probably would have made more sense of this than that, that particular thing than we can. So let's give that to the Bible, right? This actually shows its historicity, that this is old. It's a product of the ancient Near East. Secondly, we know from Genesis chapter 17 that God said this, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God makes it very clear. My people bear a private mark to show that they're, they're mine. Very clear. It's what God's people are to do. So it's laid out there that this is what the covenant people of God do. And then notice, thirdly then, then Moses and Zipporah disobey the clear teaching of God. That they have certainly are aware. They're aware of this demand, aren't they? Because they know exactly what to do to appease the wrath of God. They know this sticking. In other words, they're, they're aware of this major sin in their life that they've not addressed until now. Uh, it's just hanging there over them. So they've got this. So Moses and Zipporah had disobeyed God in this. And as a little sidebar, think about this. What's more private than circumcision? But God's very concerned about private obedience for public ministry. Private obedience matters for public ministry. Finally, then again, making minimalistic strokes on a difficult passage, Moses and Zipporah submit to what God wants, and it appeases the wrath of God. So can you see how these two stories might fit together? Pharaoh, announcement about his son, God's son, Israel. This is what God's doing, Pharaoh. Get on board, Pharaoh, saying, no thanks, I'm going to harden my heart by doing the things that I actually want to do does not come under God. And Moses and Zipporah, who also are covenant breakers, right? They're covenant breakers. And in order to be right with God, need the offering of a bloodied son. So you see two responses for us. We can be like Pharaoh. God, I want to do my own thing. Or like Moses and Zipporah to say, God, you've made it clear. And I want to submit to you and come under to you and confess to you. And of course, I think you're already ahead of me, but I'll close with this. This story, in a way, talks about sons. There's God's son, Israel, and Pharaoh wants nothing to do with God's son, Israel, right? He wants to make them as miserable as possible. He doesn't want to have anything. He says no to God's son. But then there's another son, a bloodied son, who appeases the wrath of God. You say, we too today, in God's unfolding game plan of history, look upon a bloodied son. A bloodied son who takes away 
the wrath of God that we've deserved? And the same question before these two individuals is always put before us to say, which is it going to be? To say, God's son, I want nothing to do with him, or God's son, I see that he's sufficient for me, and I come under him, and I want to obey him. Friends, I know that we always have non-Christians here. You read this today as I did. So you've got some questions to think about. Is there a God working a plan? Did we do our own thing, and are there any consequences for that? Did God act in Jesus, and was he on the cross for us? And would you surrender to him? Would you think about being right with God, surrendering to Jesus, coming under his plan, living for him, and absolutely going out and proclaiming this wonderful news that God has acted. He's put forth Jesus so we can be right with him. I pray today, again, if you've not made that commitment, that you think very carefully about that. Surrender to Christ. You must be born again. For those of us who are Christians, we're building on this. I think we fall into the trap of saying, oh, God, you know, we, we do. We think of too, too often of us just doing our own thing instead of saying, no, God's working a plan and I'm among his people and there's a task to be had and I'm to be like Moses and Aaron and, and, and proclaiming and heralding this wonder, wonderful news and coming under the Lord Jesus and submitting to him and realizing what his sacrifice meant for me. Say so that delight is ours. Now I'll pray. And if you would, while I pray in this sermon, that we also would uh, prepare for the Lord's Supper, um, which we will we'll lead into here in a moment. Lord, I, I think some people would probably mock Exodus 4. What kind of God is this that hardens Pharaoh's heart and gives us in holy writ this story of circumcision? You know, what is this about? Help us to see that you call the people to yourself and that whether... We accept that, that we, that we are brought into that is of eternal consequence. That we're a lot more like Pharaoh than we'd like to admit to say, I want my free will. God might just very well say, so be it. And then we'll go on our, our path of destruction. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, we thank you that that truth has come home. Say, you, you've, you've given us mercy. You've had mercy on us. Help us to marvel, marvel at that, not put you in the dock but to be thankful. And Lord, help us to realize our, our covenant obligations, the privilege of covenant obligations, to not take them lightly. So Lord, we, we pray that we would continue to come under you, to submit to you, and that you would give us the energy that we need to uh, proclaim this truth to all the world in Christ's name.